Recently, the League of Women Voters of Dane County held their annual meeting. Along with elections of new officers, an award ceremony, and a nice dinner, we listened to Dr. Laura Dresser speak on income inequality. The meeting took place on May 13, 2015. There are downloadable handouts that Dr. Dresser refers to at our website at lwvdanecounty.org. First, an introduction of Dr. Dresser by Ingrid Roth, co-chair of the League of Women Voters of Dane County. We have spent much of this year discussing equality and disparity, beginning of the year with a presentation on the Race to Equity report by the team from the Wisconsin Council on Children and Families. Um, and we are delighted to end it by having Laura Dresser as our speaker this evening. In the interim, we did not expect to have to do to endure here in Madison the harsh light that the tragic shooting of Tony Robinson would shine on all that we have been considering. And now we must respond. Yesterday, the Urban League of Greater Madison called on us all to join them in developing a vision for change, promoting the values of change, and serving as a voice for change, and operating as a vehicle for change. In the coming days and months, I hope we can commit to participate both as individuals and as an organization. And, and to begin, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Laura Dresser, who will be speaking to us on income inequality. Dr. Dresser is the Associate Director of the Center on Wisconsin Strategy, which is a nonpartisan think and do tank at the university. She is a labor economist and an expert on low wage work and workforce development systems. She has written widely on race and gender inequality and labor market reform and is most recently co-editor of the book, The Gloves Off Economy, Workplace Standards at the Bottom of America's Labor Market. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Laura Dresser. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the introduction, Ingrid. Thank you. Um, I'll try and put a little frame around inequality and give us some things to think about the relationship between the labor market, the inequality, and the politics that we see. Um, I'm going to start a little bit with uh, the state. I, um, oh, let me do my quick introduction to cows, moo. Um, cows, is, cows is a lot of different things, a lot of stuff more focused on national uh, um, policy and research. Uh, I work with a set of uh, SEIU training funds, for example, in healthcare all across the nation, working with low-wage workers, moving them up in labor management uh, partnerships. But other people like cows are experts on transportation, um, on uh, policy, uh, progressive policy ideas for mayors and for governors, um, and uh, creative energy uh, efficiency programming that engages community and uh, is good for the environment. All sorts of exciting things go on at COWS. One of the things we do is talk a lot about the Wisconsin economy. Um, so to the extent that some of you might have heard of that, uh, heard of us, you have probably seen that work. Um, and if you go to the COWS website, COWS.org, proving that we were early onto the internet, that we got that, huh? Um, so if you get to the internet and go to cows.org, you can find our resources there. You can sign up for our newsletter there, which uh, sends out email eh, once a month, not more than, um, when we have interesting stuff going on. We also have a Facebook page, which is a little bit of a clipping service. 
Um, and, uh, and then also another place to keep up with our work. So if you want to like us on Facebook, we can be very close friends that way. Um, and this uh, social, uh, socially and internet mediated relationship can continue on without either of us uh, hardly paying any attention to it, which is the way we relate now, right? Okay. Um, so that's about cows. Um, and uh, let's start with this state, though. Um, this, I, you know, this is, a, I think, a kind of hard time to be living in Wisconsin. Uh, that's my experience of it. Um, and I think that's a lot of people's experience of it. I think when I'm saying that, I'm talking both about the economy um, and about the space for political solution of the problems that the economy is generating. Um, I feel like, you know, being an economist, I sort of do one interview with, uh, <laughs> with journalists. How are things? They're bad. How bad are they? Really bad. That's pretty much the structure of basically any interview I've done since 2008. You know, I have some details. I have some numbers. I'll provide them now. But the, um, this, this century, going back 15 years now, has been a hard one in the American economy and a little bit harder in Wisconsin. The recession that came to us, uh, officially according to the group of uh, economists who date these things, you know, there's a group of mostly guys sitting in a room and after a recession starts, they say, oh, the recession started. So you didn't notice, but in December 2007, the recession started. That was determined by that group of dudes. And, um, but when you think about the recession, you think actually of 2008. And if you're really good, this, these are the images that go through your mind of 2000, the summer of 2008. You think of high gas prices, right? Gas prices went up nearly to four bucks a gallon. Uh, and uh, the American consumer looked sensitive for the first time almost ever to gas prices, right? And the um, auto industry fell apart as C SUV uh, sales collapsed. You remember that? The housing bubble popped. Then there was a campaign. McCain announced at the end of August his running mate. Sarah Palin. Do you remember that? This little image is running through your head. It's a kind of post-traumatic moment for you, perhaps. Anyway, she comes across the poll bounce. The polls give. He gets a little post uh, convention bounce. Layman happens mid-September, and if you remember political things, as you might, the polls flip as the economy collapses, and Obama's ahead from the collapse of Layman on in the polling. That's, you think of 2008 as when this recession began, and that is when this brutal job loss began. 750,000 jobs a month at the national level that was sustained for month after month after month. That next summer, eight months later, we all were thinking, when is it going to finally stop losing 500,000 or 750,000 jobs. The state of Wisconsin, over those eight months, loses 6% of its job base. 6% of the people who are working in December 2007 
do not have work by the end, the, the brutal bottom of that recession, which is basically late summer of 2009. And 5%, um, that's one in 20 workers, right? That ripples through this whole state. It ripples through our state budget. It ripples through our communities. It is carried unevenly, right? So some communities get hard, hit much harder, Janesville, Milwaukee, um, and some communities get hit much harder. So African-American unemployment rates in this state are always two or two and a half times the white rate. They move to three times the white rate. They have not moved back. So the people at the end of the lines for jobs end up out of work. And this economy slowly, slowly, slowly generates jobs so that at the national level, we finally get back to December 2007 this summer. And Wisconsin, we finally get back to December 2007 in February, two months ago. All right? So you should be blown away that you could have that bad of a recession because you're economists like me and I know you are, that you could have that bad a recession and that weak a recovery. The 80s recession was bad and fast, but the recovery was much stronger, even the 80s recession. And if y'all were around in Wisconsin in the 80s, you know that was a brutal recession. The recession was especially hard in construction and manufacturing, a little bit weird in this state because the, we didn't have a big housing bubble. Um, uh, and so in a lot of states, you have a big housing bubble, you have too much stock, you're overinvested, the prices fall down, you don't have to build houses for a long time. Wisconsin didn't have that kind of bubble, um, and so prices didn't collapse that way. Still, uh, we have 15% fewer construction workers today than we, even with all that building you're finally seeing, than we did in December 2007. Manufacturing is still well below it where it was in December 2007 as well. And if you look across this century, there's three manufacturing workers today for every four that held a job in Wisconsin in the year 2000. You might be noticing that I've named a couple of sectors that mostly hit men. Construction and manufacturing are mostly hard sectors for men or hard sectors, <laughs> they're hard sectors for women. They're good sectors for men, but they're where men have jobs. And so when those collapse, that disproportionately affects men. That's another way that uh, inequality is run, runs through this state. Women earn less, uh, but at least weren't in the worst hit sectors of this recession. Um, and I wanna say one thing about unemployment. I have to make sure I'm not talking too much about these things, but. Are, how are y'all doing? Feeling good? Okay. Um, I'll wave my hands. Um, uh, one thing about unemployment, I know we think of the unemployed, and that's very important. Uh, we have done uh, bad things to the unemployed over the last, uh, uh, over the course of this recession, including changing the terms on which you get unemployment insurance in this state. Uh, making people wait for a week before they can get their health, uh, their unemployment insurance. That's a new policy in the Act 10 budget. Um, uh, but unemployment is not just about the unemployed. As much as they suffer the worst of it, 
Unemployment is about also about the security of the people who are working. So when there is a long line of people at the door to get a job, your job is less secure. The whole question about workers' power in a workplace is about their sense of security, right? If you've got a lot of skills, if you're irreplaceable, if you have specific knowledge to the firm that they can't let leave, these things give you leverage. If you're replaceable, or your supervisor's a little nuts, or there's a lot of people waiting at the door for a job, and they know they can post and get a long list of applicants, you have less power. And less power means, no, you can't ask for a, a wage increase, but it also means you cannot, uh, you don't feel as secure asking to go, for example, to a children's a child soccer game, or calling in sick, or um, asking for a new shift schedule because something's changed on the home front. Everything about your job becomes less secure when unemployment is going on um, going up elsewhere. And this is why the soft demand unemployment, technical formal unemployment levels in Wisconsin are now back to where they were before the recession. But we are about 100,000 jobs short of where we would need to be to make it feel like 2000, uh, like it was in December 2007. How could that be? Our population, our working age population has grown. So if this labor market had absorbed people, and if people were working at the rate that they were in 2007, we would have 100,000 more jobs today than we do. We need 100,000 jobs. There's a job watch. Wisconsin, I mean, COWS does a monthly release called Job Watch that tells you what that job deficit is. And so you can know that number and thrill your friends with it. Um, but uh, so we need 100,000 jobs to make it feel that way, and that's, a question of how much power workers have vis-a-vis -vis their employers for their bargaining, their position, their security, and their ability to bargain small and large things on the job. All right, so that's a little bit about the state. And oh, let me say the, the final thing I, I will, I know y'all are readers. I expect you're readers. Uh, and an academic from Minnesota has just done a, a kind of very thorough piece called The High Road Wins comparing Minnesota and Wisconsin. Ann Markison did a piece for the American Prospect. You'll find it there. Um, and it just compares uh, economic outcomes over the last, uh, since 2010, the gubernatorial terms, in, uh, in the context of very different approaches to budget deficits um, and to uh, labor policy and to social support policy. Um, so Wisconsin and Minnesota have diverged quite, quite a bit, uh, both in terms of economic outcomes, where Minnesota's seem substantially better, and in terms of political choices, which have consistently picked a kind of high road approach to their economy, as opposed to a kind of austerity, uh, low road, anti-union approach that we've seen here. All right, well, that gets you through Wisconsin. Um, and uh, I think the state, uh, I, I, I want to say one thing about the state budget. Um, I was especially pleased to note that you all, well, the statewide league, which is you, right, uh, endorsed the Better Choices budget. 
And I want to draw that to your attention because we are so convinced that there are no other ways. I mean, convinced, I don't know. I know you all know there are other ways to run a state budget. This state budget is a, a, a very harsh budget for things that a lot of people care about, not just the university, not just K through 12 education, not just the environment, not just all our social support programs, uh, but all taken together a pretty, uh, a pretty wall to wall, I would think, uh, I think of it as a bit of an attack and a regression on what is a progressive platform for building an economy. Um, the Better Choices budget, which the Wisconsin Council on Children and Families has uh, at the Wisconsin Budget Project site, and they even have these little videos, you know, about it. Um, basically, they just do a few things. The first and most obvious thing is it takes the federal Medicaid money. Do you all know how much that is? Someone in this room does. The annual Medicaid money this state could be getting if we just take it. 358, I think, 358 million dollars. Does that sound like a number you've heard? Like what's getting taken out of the university? Two times what's getting taken out of the schools. And that was down on the schools. That was just flat, you know, like the schools need more. Um, so thing one, you know, take the Medicaid money. Even what, even Ohio is taking the Medicaid money, right? If Ohio can do this, right, or Arizona, I mean, really, there's a lot of folks who find that money irresistible, um, and, and it would be nice if we did too. Um, another thing is that tucked into the Act 10 budget was a write-off uh, thing for ca uh, manufacturing capital that actually really blows up as it goes forward. So closing that loophole, not going back and taking away what's already been given, but closing what is going to be given is another $200 million. And, um, and then we don't have to do the tax cut. They, they did half the tax cut. Um, and altogether, that gets you enough money to make up, to make good to the university, to make good on the schools and to do a lot of other good things in this state. Um, it is possible and even doable in, uh, you know, in, a, in political context not so different than ours. Um, and I think it's just important for people to know, especially, you know, this is not such a thing for people in Madison to know because uh, our legislators aren't the problem on this budget. Um, but the connections you have across the state to, uh, play, to other places on what this budget could look like are very important. And I, um, you know, oh, also, you, I didn't say, I should have said, I mean, I, so I was excited to see that you'd endorse that. But of course, um, who could stand in front of the League of Women Voters and not thank them, you, for your work on voter ID? So, um, you know, uh, nice try. Sorry. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, right, an A for effort. This is what we all get in this state all the time. We try, but that was an important thing to try. All right, and now I want to talk about inequality a bit. I'm 
Okay, so so I'm going to talk about inequality, inequality quickly, and I just want to say two words at the same time: inequality, inevitability, inequality, inevitability. We all act as if inequality is the result of inevitable forces beyond our policy control. That is, it is like the wind. Now, of course, actually, the interesting thing is we're finally figuring out the ways that we affect the wind, right? Even the climate is in our hands. But the economy is certainly in our hands, right? The economy is a system of exchange. It's a set of rules, a set of property rights distributions, a set of markets, a set of um, assumptions and regulations about how we are going to interact with each other and with goods and services. That's what the economy is. It is in our hands and it is in our service in theory. Um, but in fact, we often feel like it's completely out of our hands and inevitable. Inequality is this way. I think we feel this way sometimes about inequality. It's been an exciting year in inequality. Some of you, many of you, how many of you bought the Piketty book, Capital? Yeah, yeah. How many of you read it? Ooh, nice. I, I bought the book and then I read about as many pages are in the book in reviews of the book. Um, but never really actually managed to read the damn book. So um, I, I honor those of you who read it. But anyway, I pickety, you know, uh, that book got attention, an academic book, serious treatment of inequality, got, a, got very serious mainstream attention. The way that presidential candidates now talk about inequality is completely new, even compared to four years ago, as you've been reading. And um, in fact, I guess apparently we don't say middle class anymore. That I just learned yesterday. You won't hear them saying middle class anymore because we've lost so much middle class. People feel bad when you mention it. So it's an unrecommended word. In fact, actually, uh, Wisconsin led the nation in losing the middle class uh, over this uh, century. So there's another little fact to um, keep us going. Anyway, on this question of uh, economic choices and inevitability, I want to just give you two things. One thing is that it is true that inequality has increased across the globe. It is not true that it has increased as much in the developed world anywhere as it has increased in the U.S. The U.S. leads in producing inequality off of the same trade and globalization and immigration, all the things that you say or that we all think, these are the things that make this inevitable. Global, the global economy blows across us. Technology blows across us, and we are left with incredible disparity. Wages stagnant in the middle while the economy grows, increasing rewards ever going to the top. This is true, that this is the way the, the, the U.S. economy is organized right now. There are no rewards at the middle. There are only rewards at the top. It is stagnation at the middle, decline at the bottom, and rewards at the top. It's not true everywhere else, and that's your first indication that things might be possible a different way. I gave you on the back or the front, depending on which way you picked it up, this one, the one with the two lines showing inequality in the United States, and one thing that is totally the creation of policy, union density. 
oh, look at that. When unions go away, inequality increases. It's almost eerie how reflected those are, right? But that is to make you think that there are things, uh, you know, that the institutional, and if any state knows that the institutional framework around unions is what defines whether they exist or not, not the demand of workers for unions, right? But the institutional framework that defines how unions are certified, the terms under which they bargain, how they represent workers, this state has rewritten those rules first for public sector workers, now also for private sector workers in ways that will certainly decrease the share of workers represented by unions. Not because people don't want to be in unions, not because we have fewer people who want to be in unions today than we did 20 years ago, but the terms of being in a union, the way we regulate it, have shifted and they have shifted power consistently away from workers and towards employers. And it is not surprising that the rewards of this economic growth goes to the, go to the people who have been building the power. All right, so that's the first thing to know. I just wanted to talk a little bit about low-wage jobs, um, which is the other side of the coin, um, because uh, this has also been an incredible and inspiring year to consider the minimum wage. A year and a half ago, Obama kind of said, I think I'm for 947. Remember that? And then the workers, the fast food workers, hit the street saying 15. And a lot of the people, you know, around the country, maybe in this room, winced a little $15 an hour. The minimum wage, as you all know, right now is 725. We can't quite do that, can we? Now, actually, as an economist, I would not be willing to say, I'm willing to say we can move to 10, 10, or 12 with minimal impact. I'm not willing to say, yeah, I know that we could go to 15 and it wouldn't have an impact on jobs. So I'm not saying it's easy, but that changed the way we talk about the minimum wage. The federal bill now, the federal legislation is 12. Melissa Sargent, God bless her, has introduced legislation for 15 in the, in the state capital that will, you know, go where things like that go. But, you know, it's at least been mentioned, uh, you know, and, and along the way, uh, more than 20 states are above the federal minimum. States like Arkansas have passed increases and in indexing. If you put this on any ballot, you can win it. Um, states that don't have a way to put it on the ballot, like Wisconsin, can't get it on the ballot. But any state you put this on, okay, maybe not Idaho, I'm not sure. But basically, any state. This is popular to, to raise the wage because everybody has this sense that we have a, our balances out of whack in terms of allowing employers to drive down wages and working conditions, drive down standards, and then have those workers rely on public programs to make their lives possible because work is not enough to make their lives possible. They earn wages that cannot pay their rent and feed their kids, and especially that can't put gas in their cars to get to their weirdly distributed jobs. 
It's the irrational system of distribution of jobs and people requires everybody to have a car. And when you're poor, that's a lot of money. So, um, you know, those jobs, by the way, notice them. Food service, retail, and uh, home health. Well, it's a mix of home health and, and long-term care, nursing homes and stuff. Those workers are making wages at the bottom of the economy. They are not having work transformed by technology. They are not having work uh, undermined by ruinous wage competition by McDonald's in Singapore, right? The terms of those jobs are determined here. In fact, those healthcare jobs, the terms of those jobs are determined by public policy. And it is public policy that has underwritten the fastest growing workforce at these miserable wages in home health. Those are public jobs. We don't treat them that way. We don't pay them that way. We don't acknowledge them that way. But the money for them is all from the public side. And if we had demands on those jobs, we could change the standards on those jobs. And 15 bucks an hour is a way to start that. Again, what I'm saying is inequality is not inevitable. Inequality is what we're living in. Inequality is in every bit of that budget you see. And it's in, um, in the policies that we've seen pursued in this state and the policies of austerity pursued at the national level. But they are not inevitable and they are not necessary in this, the richest nation on the planet. And so um, that's, you know, the other thing. I know you know all this. I just want you to say it. And my last thing is um, it is impossible to talk about inequality today and not think about racial inequality um, and to think not just about what is legal but what about, what, about what is acceptable. It is completely uh, legal that we have the level of disparity by race that we do in this county, right? That's legal, but it's not acceptable. And uh, we have to, um, I just want to second what Ingrid was saying, um, whether it's, you know, for memory of Tony Robinson or for the basic decency and humanity of all the people in this county, we really have to change. Uh, who we include and how we include them, and when we think we've got a good thing going in Madison, because it really needs to be new. That's the end. Thank you. Now questions from the audience for Dr. Laura Dresser. Looking at the chart of share of income going to the top 10%, I'm surprised that even now it looks like only 50% of the money is going to the top 10%. Am I reading that wrong? I mean, I said only 50 is going to the top 10, but... You're reading it right. The, the, um, there's a few things. The top 10%, if we did the 1%, it would be most of the 50%. So some of the statistics that you see where a teeny tiny share is most, most of the money, it, it would get emphasized by that. The other thing is you probably, sometimes this is done in wealth, though not at the state level. Well, this is a federal one, too. But wealth is much more extreme than income. Um, and so some of the, the, the total income ones that include wealth will, look, will blow people's socks off and have those giant stacks. 
I was always concerned, actually, when we were talking about the middle class that we never did kind of talk about how all this stuff was going to hit the working poor. So if you're talking about the middle class, isn't it inevitable that it's in the middle and that some people are higher and lower? How do you, how can you framework that for me? Um, well, I don't know how, I, I mean, I think one thing that happens with that word middle class, and I, um, this, it's, a, it's a politician uh, word and politician usage I think I'm talking about here. I don't generally talk about middle class. I talk about median workers a lot, um, which is so obscure that nobody really knows what I'm saying, but to me it's meaningful. So, um, but the, the middle class, I believe, has come to mean in the U.S. I mean, if, if you ask people, are you in the middle class, basically everybody says yes. Right? Um, because you don't want to not be that. Um, politicians tend to use it to mean a kind of American dream set of things. You know, can send your kids to school, you know, uh, college, can afford to send your kids to college, can afford a house, kind of American dream list sorts of things. So, so I don't know that I'm helping with that. I mean, the, the article I read was just about the way that, um, both on the Republican side and on the Democratic side, if you had looked at this point in the primaries four years ago, everybody would be talking about the middle class. And apparently, now they don't. They don't use that phrase anymore. And I think a political phrase, it meant like we're all in this together. Um, but now I think it conjures up too much suffering, and so they've jettisoned it. That's, that's why I mentioned it. You've been listening to Dr. Laura Dresser speak on income inequality. She's an economist at the Center of Wisconsin Strategies at UW-Madison. The talk was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County on May 13, 2015. To find out what else the League is up to, go to their website at lwvdanecounty.org. The views expressed here are those of the speakers, and not necessarily those of the League of Women Voters of Dane County. Permission to rebroadcast this podcast is granted if credit is given to the League of Women Voters of Dane County and any editing does not alter the speaker's meaning.